Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Sit back, relax. Well, it'd be nice if we could do that, Mark. This is take two of this recording. We had a little technical glitch, as they say, with this. So hopefully this one will be all good. Vetgurus.com, the place to go. And also patreon.com slash vetgurus to send us a little bit of money and help us support our... um, technical glitches being fixed mark and um get things moving so um yeah well um we just wasted a few minutes there but um we had a bit of a a laugh and a chat um although we couldn't hear each other there so as i was about uh, i was halfway through one of my um monotonous diatribes there mark and i was talking about a recent visit to the vet school here in melbourne um victoria australia and I spent a whole day there teaching and I got to tour around the fancy new five-storey, I think, building there. Pretty, and um, yeah, It maybe, has a reputation for being pretty flat. It was it made me feel a bit jealous because I, I did spend my last few couple of years there. I'd, I'd almost said longer than two years, but no, I did manage to get through without failing um, the vet, vet, um, vet course um, many years ago. Um, and gee, um, it was pretty run down even at that stage, um, <laughs> in the late 1980s, Mark. And, um, although the teaching was excellent and we had some fantastic professors there that, um, well, most of them are dead now, so, um, <laughs> um, which is a bit sad, but, um, as we will be, um, soon, Mark, I expect, <laughs> um, but hopefully not too soon. Um, so I'm off on a bit of a tangent here, but yes, no, a fantastic, um, a fantastic building. And, um, I was there teaching, um, well, a tutorial for probably two or three hours and hi to all the, the group there. What, um, what were you teaching? The, 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 I know those students yeah, well, look forward so much to your, um, your, uh, little episodes in education. So what, what, what were you leading them in? Yeah, it's the one that we've sort of spoken about a, a, a few times before, um, the wildlife, um, tracks it's called um and it's a sort of an elective in um third year at the melbourne university vet school um where they get to choose between um three or four options there i think one of them is horse medicine and surgery one's the wildlife slash industry another one is small small animals and um i think um there's a combined one which is sheep or cattle um and I think that might be it. There might be one other, um, but yeah. So I, I'm involved with the, the wildlife, um, the wildlife one. So we, we spent um, uh, two or three hour, hours doing sort of case scenarios of unusual pets and mostly wildlife, um, and also looking with Jasmine, who's of course coordinator, looking at some skulls of some wombats and koalas. So looking at dentition and evolution of, of some of the wildlife and ageing of these animals via dentition. Um, so we had a good little time. And then in the afternoon, after a pretty pretty damn good lunch, actually, they've actually they've, this was another reason why I was jealous. They have a cafe now on site there. That's a um, very cafe. trendy cafe there, Mark. Um, How Melbourne and, is um, that? 
and it's called Mr. Ed, um, <laughs> as, as, um, as, as you would expect. And, yeah, no, the coffee was quite good, Mark, I must admit. Um, as, um, as, as you know, I like my coffee and I had a very good coffee there and, and a, a little wrap there um, for did, lunch. Did, did you ask for a magic no, I didn't ask for a magic. I ended up with a double shot, um, double shot flat white. I think um, I, I yeah. To, I, if I uh, for those listeners who haven't been with, with us for that long, you have to go back to previous episodes and, and our discussion on the coffee called a magic. It's a bit of a Melbourneian thing, but um, I think it has spread a little bit to other regions of not only Australia but but the world as well. But it's particular. A particular brew, Mark, but I, um, so I do like to sort of um, challenge, challenge um, baristas with with asking for a magic. And the other the other drink I tend to challenge them with is I, and they often look at me quizzically as you would. I, I say to them, can I have a um, decaf um, coffee? Um, and then I say to them, oh, hang on a sec, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit run down today. Can you give me a double decaf? <laughs> and, um, and, it, and they look at me, they start making it, and then they look at me quizzically and say, um, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> and um, it gives me a bit of a feel for whether or not they're uh, – they um they they know their they know their they know their business mark. So yes, yeah, so we had a, had a nice lunch there, and then in the afternoon we did necropsies, um, and that was basically sort of clinically clinical approach. Um, we did we actually we didn't do any reptiles this time, but it was birds and, and mammals, and we had a few possums. And it's a bit, from and, my underst- um, caught, and understanding of the the stuff you guys do, it does have a little bit of a wildlife focus. And um, so, which species would would you have done the post mortems on? So a couple of koalas, some possums, um, various possums, ring-tailed, brush-tailed possums. Um, uh, there was a few birds there, although I don't think we got a chance to do um, the birds in the end because we spent a little bit of time with the, with the others and we had a, a macropod or two, so a, a couple of kangaroos as well. Um, and, um, yeah, we had a we had a, had a good time. And, um, you know, it's not only sort of teaching about the – the anatomy and the variations in anatomy with, with the different wildlife species, but we tried to make it a bit clinical and and the approach of saying, uh, "Hey, you, you get a you have you're presented with a with a with a possum with a with an injury um, in in general practice. How would you approach everything from supportive care to safely handling or or, um, or anaesthetizing or sedating the animal?" To providing um, first aid and, and 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 supportive care like nutrition, you know, what would you feed this animal if it was brought into your clinic? So, yeah, it was good fun. Um, I think the students enjoyed it. I certainly did, Mark. So, but yes, a very snazzy um, um, centre now that they've got there, and I'm looking forward to also doing the same with they. They've also on the main campus at Melbourne University. There's a new combined agriculture and veterinary um, faculty and and buildings there which I think with the two different um, um, with that building on main campus and the one at Werribee which is the one I was just speaking about um, 69 million dollars I think was the price for it for them so they've spent a little bit of money mark on it so if only we had that in our day, Mark Um, perhaps we could be decent veterinarians (laughs) Um, but 
then again, I doubt how much. Um, no matter how much money you throw at throw at me, it um, it won't improve my clinical skills um, any more than they are because I'm set in my ways. Mark, what have you been up to? <laughs> oh, just um, uh, nothing as exciting as as you. The we've just had um, you know, the usual. Um, uh, we've actually had sort of like a little bit of run of um of. Uh, uh, emergencies. We, you know, that here in Newcastle, in uh, um, Eastern Australia, we have an emergency hospital. My good friend David Tabret um, is the uh, um, CEO, and he uh, yes. um, a small animal practitioner of the year for our ASAV um, this uh, current year. He's an excellent veterinarian, and um, so, but because he's there, we often we don't see nearly as many emergency cases as we once did, Brendan. Um, but we have had a run of strange poisonings and um, uh, and motor vehicle accidents. We've had just a little, I don't know. Um, a bit of a resurgence in the number of emergencies that we see. So it's been a little bit frantic and they always happen at particularly um, that, uh, I suppose, five, five o'clock when the first half of the day shift's gone home and we've got um, just a little bit lower number of um, staff members and we're fully booked with consults because everyone's coming home from work. Um, so, yeah, they always add a little bit of... Challenge. Um, dis- challenge, that's the word I was looking for. I was about to say disorganisation, but that would be the same as the rest of my day, but challenge is a better word. Rest of your day or the rest of your life, Mark? Yes. Disorganisation. <laughs> my life is just made up of a series of disorganised days. Life is messy. Life is messy, Mark, and um, I think that's one of the important things that we need to always remember, and that's um, Steve Martin in one of his films. <laughs> um, the fa- I love um, it when you start quoting films. Yes, and it is so true. Well, I think I don't think I have a review to speak of, Mark, um, as with my usual preparation. I don't have anything ready to go. Do you have anything to review? Otherwise, we'll jump into our... Our main topic. Straight um, into our main topic. Which is, well, our main topic is trying to catch up on some of these amazing news stories that we managed to track down or our helpers um, slash slash um, Doug, etc. Our research department manages to help us with. And, um, yeah, it's. I think I've got about 20 um, other news stories apart from the ones that we're going to rip into it shortly, Mark, um, that we have... um, ready to go. So, um, yeah, let's rip into them. I'm going to take the first one, Mark, and as usual, it's one about goats um, because, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm fascinated with goats, although I must admit, and my wife, Annie, and I have mentioned this previously, um, she's not too keen on goats. She and I, and I think I mentioned on the podcast before, she does not like goats because she says they have crazy eyes, um, Mark, and um, I can see her point with that. And this is a article from our, our usual um, news source, Mother Nature Network, and it is 14 Things You Didn't Know About Goats. And I'm trying to scroll down here, and they do mention about their eyes, and I thought it was quite interesting. There we go, about the horizontal pupils of goats. Number seven, quoting from the article, Mark, some people are creeped out. They're actually, e. they're actually talking about Annie in this article. <laughs> Yes, yes, by the odd side-slit pupils in a goat's eyes. Researchers say the side-slanted eyes are typical and they typically belong to grazing prey. 
Why? Because it gives them a wider field of vision, but they don't absorb as much light from above. This stops the sun from blinding their view, but also lets them keep an eye out for predators. So that's the evolution of those crazy eyes, Mark, um, in that, that um, they can um, keep their eye out for being attacked by something as also. Uh, uh, as well as um, on the lookout for some food. So, yeah, that was number seven. But, yeah, most of the – well, I think of these 14 things you didn't know, you probably know 13 of these 14, Mark. So I'm going to run through just a couple of the other ones that I think were either interesting or, or maybe um, completely wrong um, or, or just silly. Um, and one of them was goats prefer happy faces. Did you read that one there, Mark, um, in an experience? In an ex- simple experiment, which I haven't clicked on the link, um, I must admit, researchers put photos on the wall, and this is the sort of study that I'd love to do. I, these are sort of the studies that you could see me do, and I'm sure, Mark. Researchers, researchers put photos on the wall at a goat sanctuary of the same face, one happy and one angry. Um, well, it would be pretty hard to find anything but angry um, photos of me, wouldn't there, Mark? Um, so we'd have to get one of you and one of me. Um, goats tended to avoid the angry faces and approach the happy ones. The lead author, Christian Noroth, said, Here we show the, for the first time that goats do not only distinguish between these expressions, but they also prefer to interact with happy faces or happy ones. Well, I don't know about that, Mark. I think that's drawing a bit of a, bit of a short being, straw there. But despite um, it being a simple experiment, I think the conclusions are anything but simple. Yes, I think we need to we need some further studies on on goats preferring happy faces um, um, experiments, Mark. Um, but leading on from that, number three was goats have rich emotional lives or richer emotional lives than many people realise. Not only are they supposedly surprisingly intelligent, but they can also identify their friends by sound alone and even distinguish other goats' emotions by listening to their calls. And this was based on different physiological reactions based on emotions they hear from other goats and a sign of social phenomenon known as emotional contagion, Mark. Have you heard about emotional contagion before? I, I, I do. I have heard of emotional contagion and I do get happy when you're happy. So I'm not surprised that goats follow our lead. Well, there we go. Um, well, I'm not going to go through the other the other 12 or so. Um, one talks about both male and female goats having the beards um, and that goats are pretty hardy animals and there's a couple of species that are commonly kept as pets and the different colorations on them. Um, and, yeah, that's about it. It's not. It's not in your article, but um, I, I, I've got to admit that I get upset about goats because a lot of the um, a lot of the little memes, a little social commentary, um, on my timeline on some of my social media includes goats. That particularly those ones that, um, that uh, have the um, faulty gene that means they go all rigid and paralysed if they get um overexcited and. I, I worry about those goats quite a lot, Brendan. It quite get, a lot. It gets your goat, does it? Um, those memes that you see. I wish I hadn't said. Yeah. I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> so, what's your first story, Mark? 
I'm going to talk about um, clownfish. And Brennan, you know how much I love jumping in the ocean. Um, and interestingly enough, I do have a client who breeds um, clownfish in captivity and supplies them to the aquarium trade, which is a good thing, I think. I don't like the idea of them being continuously harvested from the wild. But this story, this article, um, talks about light pollution and um, it tells us that um, that in, in a study um, where uh, breeding clownfish pairs were exposed to 12 hours of normal daylight followed by 12 hours of dim artificial light, there is, they, they laid eggs, they did all the normal things, but none of their eggs hatched. Now, the level of light that they were um, exposed to in the night, the dim artificial light, was meant to replicate what might happen on coral reefs that are just offshore to a small city, for example, or maybe um, uh, um, something like marine infrastructure like um, mining rigs or piers or cruise ships, uh, which increasingly spend time on on and around coral reefs um, and and it was the scientists uh, were actually a little bit surprised to discover that not a single egg um, that was laid under the artificial light conditions where they got extra light um, hatched uh, in comparison the group of clownfish kept in exactly the same circumstances but exposed to normal cycles of light and dark um, had an 80 six percent hatch rate so um they both laid roughly the same amount of eggs but um none of the light impacted eggs hatched um so this has the other thing about um clownfish is that not only the reef on which they breed depend on successful breeding but those larvae which enter the larger ocean wash between different reefs and populate distant reefs and so a single reef affected by light may have a significant effect on all not only the reef that uh, is adjacent to the light but all um, surrounding reefs and and it may even have an effect on the genetic makeup of the population on a whole reef a single light source um, researchers uh, caution that light pollution could be creating an ecological trap for recruiting reef fishers and um, and they worry that this could have a significant and broad-scale consequence um, way outside of the, um, the extent of the light pollution. Um, so this is just another example of our of you know the the nuance and subtlety um, that relatively small and what seems to us to be inconsequential changes might have significant far-reaching impacts on our environment, Brendan. And, well, I've got two comments on that, Mark. One is um, we have, we've privately discussed and perhaps at the podcast at one stage the importance of of lighting in, in breeding a, a, an array of species, haven't we? And, and we need to chat about um, using light to induce breeding in reptiles snakes for instance that um i, th I think yes. is a much safer um way of, of of inducing ovulation and 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 the breeding cycle in snakes rather than the traditional cooling the um snakes down and i'm sure you've over the years seen lots of snakes that have been supposedly cooled down for breeding and all you end up is seeing all these sick and or dying snakes that we can avoid that by just altering the light cycle so you know in in that respect i don't think it's i don't think it's anything um 
unusual that we wouldn't expect, Mark. And but I think we can, um, I think we can relate this to something even closer, and to me, closer to home. Um, you were mentioning and talking about the impact of artificial light on the young, Mark, where they're um, attracted. It's the, the other reefs are attracting young fish to environments where the young won't likely hatch, and that that reminds me very much like my two girls. <laughs> And they're, they're attracted to the nightclub scene, Mark. Um, um, so it attracts youngsters, these artificial lights, don't, don't they? Um, so the good news about that is if it follows on from this, then they won't get pregnant. Do you think that'll work? I don't know that I can. I don't know that I entirely followed the first step, let alone the second one. But I've got my fingers crossed for you, Brendan. <laughs> You don't understand my reasoning at all, do you, Mark? Um, then, then it, <laughs> I understand some of it. Then again, tonight, um, as we're recording, Mark, I don't understand my reasoning one little bit as well. Yes, so um, the reason why I, I went off on that crazy tangent is um, just quietly, um, so um, our audience, our limited audience of a few hundred or a few thousand are the only people who know that um, my youngest, Sophie Mark, and we haven't spoken about this, has finally started going out on the town, so to speak, a a little bit. And um, she's doing what Jane used to do several years ago and she's, um, yeah, she's probably only done it about three or four times where she's gone out with her friends, um, her university friends, and they've gone to to the clubs or the nightclubs several times. And, gee, I'll tell you what, I was so happy once Jane, the older one, um, decided she's over that and um, she moved on to just, um, well, just going to pubs and listening to bands and those sort of things. But but Sophie's in that um, mindset at the moment and, um, yeah, she's attracted to the lights of the dance floor at the moment, Mark. Um, so that's why this story reminded me of that yes and i thought maybe um these artificial lights um perhaps yeah it is drawing a bit of a long straw isn't it um or a bow or or an arrow or whatever whatever um analogy or or uh, well, I'll stop there. I'm, I'm just we'll glad that, that Soph's yeah. getting out and having a good time. That's, that's the long and the <laughs> she short is, She's having a very good time. Well, my next next little news story, Mark, is exactly that. It's a pretty quick one, and this um, happened um, earlier this year in that um, the University of Surrey in the UK, United Kingdom, had the graduate, graduation class of its first cohort five years after officially opening a School of Veterinary Medicine. So the class of 2019 received their degree and their certificates, Mark. Um, and um, it was, there was a couple of interesting things about it. Um, the the, the um, school was officially opened by Her Majesty the Queen, um, a £45 million a pound school um, it cost to to start it and they had 650 students I presume over the over the four or five years of um, of, of the course mark who are, who are undertake undertaking their veterinary studies and they have a um, 
according to the school, a unique teaching model that includes intramural rotations where final year students undertake clinical training placements in the workplace and are mentored by university staff and trained practice personnel, which I think is done at a fair few other schools as well. But I think it is really important because I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, Mark, um, as far as when when students get out into practice in that first year, um, the complaints by practice owners and, and management is is often um, or frequently um, that the students aren't prepared for that first year in practice. So getting them out there almost doing a, an internship type um, um, process I think is a, a good thing There's to do. There's two things I'd say about that, Brendan. The first one is that um, I am aware of the huge, not just the cost, but the huge difficulty involved in getting a veterinary school accredited and um, all the all the more um, congratulations go to the people at Surrey for getting to the point where they have a cohort graduating. Um, it's not an easy thing to get done. And the, the it is a really interesting because a really interesting thing how that teaching model has, uh, while this article suggests that it's a unique teaching model, I think you're right in suggesting that it's become much more widespread. And there's two sides to the, I suppose, the 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 process, two thought, um, two schools of thought. I tend to agree with you. I think that um, good uh, time spent in um, reasonable practices with appropriate reflection on what happens in them, the the mentoring and and uh, training of the the uh, workplace staff who are working with the students is a um, an excellent thing that turns, as you said, turns them into uh, practice ready graduates. Um, and I like to think that when you and I went through all those years ago, um, despite the fact that. Um, that we didn't have the benefit of workplace placements, um, that um, that we were practice ready. But on 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 looking back, I think that um, that our initial employers probably felt that uh, we were a bit underdone, that we could have been ripened a bit more um, before we were ready for practice. But I do think also there's a a thought process that um, the universities are. Um, are getting the job done for them to a certain extent, um, that they are um, sometimes, uh, what's the right way to put it without sounding like, a, uh, that, 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 you know, that uh, the things that <clears throat> the universities should be teaching them to be practice ready, um, they're, they're getting um, practitioners who already have a full book of things to do um, to take on that responsibility. I, I, we do, as you do, Brendan, we take on final year students quite regularly um, and I find it uh, refreshing. I find it um, uh, challenging sometimes. Um, it's, uh, um, it certainly brings a level of awareness of the things that we need to be reminding ourselves because we have to remind these students um, of all the time. So I think um, it makes us as a practice that hosts those uh, students better, and I think it's a, a great privilege to be able to do it. But I know some practitioners feel um, that they 
you know, that they're doing stuff that maybe the university should do. Well, there's both sides, isn't there, to the argument. The university may be saying, look, it's not our job to to have them practice ready. We're training veterinary scientists and not necessarily veterinary practitioners, and they're trying to cram a hell of a lot of information and an increasingly amount of information into the course. So they're teaching probably general skills a lot of the time and, and, and problem-solving techniques because there's no way you can teach everything, obviously, as, as, as all the um, information explodes over time. And then, and then the practitioners say, no, we want you, we don't, we don't want academics, we want um, veterinarians. So, um, and it has to be somewhere in between. And I know there are, there are universities um, throughout the world that do, that do provide um, payment, actually, to, to practitioners um, when they are having the placements and I think that's a good thing if that can be that can be arranged I, I don't know what the situation is where you are Mark but um, you know down here where I'm an academic associate of Melbourne University there are benefits there's no payment as such being an academic associate and having students see in practice um, and having placements in my practice but the the benefits are that um, I I do get um, access to to um, facilities that staff, um, general staff would and access to, you know, the library resources and, and internet searches and, and free use of, you know, and um, in um, library um, full searches and, and academic journals, etc. which, which you know, to me it is worth it, worth it, worth a lot. Um, so, and I think for the university to provide something like that um, doesn't cost them much and yet it's it's very valuable for, for people like myself. So, I think there's ways around it there, you know, so it's trying to get that balance and I always, and and for those vet students who listen to our, our podcast and, and veterinary technicians and nurses as well, Mark, I always stress to them, when you're out seeing practice, forget about the practice you're in, um, don't, don't worry about, don't study up on exotic pets and unusual pets and wildlife if you're going to see practice with Brendan um, because you will learn that because you're in an exotics practice. Um, spend time looking and watching and learning about how the vet deals with or the nurse or the, or the technician deals with the client and those sort of human interpersonal skills and interactions because they're the things that still unfortunately I think in most if not all veterinary veterinary um, institutions are not taught very well um, it's that how to deal with the client um, who who is angry at you or how to deal with the client who won't listen to to your diagnosis or how to deal with the client um, who has the animal that's trying to rip your throat out um, as you're trying to put a flea treatment on that that German shepherd so um, they're the things that you know I really try and get them to stress because you'll learn the other bits if you if you've seen practice in a horse practice you'll learn about horses because you're at a horse practice um so watch and learn about how that vet does the euthanasia on the horse and how he how he or she deals with that client as far as the euthanasia process and um you know um when you get to know your clients and some client one client might, might just want you to be really blunt with the euthanasia process and another client wants you to slowly let them down and, and, and talk them through it over, over several days and, and explain the fact that you need your your horse or your other pet euthanized. Um, so, yeah, um, 
that's that's my advice with doing that because you'll soon work out, Mark, won't you? That that the G Brendan's practice is probably not the best place to work at because he has no idea what he's talking about. Um, but at least he has a good chat to the clients, and he has perhaps a, a reasonable rapport with with the clients that have been with him for twenty to twenty five or thirty years or so. That. Um, you know, and that's the you know, as as we get older and perhaps little more or less cranky, Mark. I think it's one of the things that I really appreciate. You you have these clients where you've seen the multiple animals come and go, but you've also seen their family, their kids grow up um, and 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 move on, and um, you've you've got old with the client as well as as well as their animals. I think um that. That it is your as usual. You display uncommon wisdom in touching on um, the parts of practice that universities um, are, are not. You know, just by their nature, they're never going to be able to to teach those things. Um, the only way uh, veterinary students are going to see them is to actually see them. Um, and your advice is good. They, when they're in those practices, they should really uh, spend a lot of time looking at the. You know the the non-clinical uh, um, aspects of practice because often they're the things that do trouble them as new graduates. The money, the um, the the failure of clients to accept, recommend reasonable medical recommendations, um, and and learning how to deal with those and learning how to communicate those things is certainly makes a, a significant difference to. Um, well-being in those first few years after graduation, and I know um, that that uh, the wonderful uh, cohort at Surrey will have gotten that experience from the uh, the intramural rotations at uh, at general practices in that part of the world. Yes. Well, next news story, Matt. That was going to be a quick one, <laughs> but it ended up being a little bit longer than I expected. Well, the next one that I really um, think will be nice and quick because it, it definitely speaks to a topic that uh, we've spoken about before and um, and we are constantly uh, hoping to promote. Um, this one is about a rescue centre in Essex, um, an RSPCA rescue centre in Essex, which has come up with a novel way to keep their lagomorphs uh, entertained. They have... The Danaher Animal Home in Wethersfield um, has a bunny ball pit. Um, they just like um, you know, you know those places where um, where uh, young mothers go to meet and they set their children free in a relatively safe play area. Though, and uh, in one of the areas where those children play, there's a ball pit, colourful balls in a pool or some other arrangement and the children can dive in and disappear under the balls. Um, the Danaher Animal Home has used that principle to keep um, uh, rabbits entertained. And I like the general principle that people think outside the square um, for uh, creating enrichment. Um, I think one of the things about our... Um, all our pets, both the unusual avian, exotic and the more traditional pets, is that they have such a good life um, that sometimes they have boring bits and they have smart and they're used to using their brain all the time. And so the use of um, tubes, cardboard tubes or boxes or um, uh, those... Um, 
puzzles that you can buy for cockatoos, the the acrylic plastic puzzles. They're really important to continually work at, coming up with ways to enrich um, the well-being and and uh, activity of our unusual pets and. Um, I certainly wouldn't have thought myself of a ball pit for rabbits. That's, yes. That is really yes. thinking. Um, and I note in the article that they do say that whilst not all rabbits will enjoy being in a ball pit, for those that do, this can be great enrichment and owners can scatter some tasty, healthy treats in the pit for the rabbits to find. Um, and look, I, I don't know that I would, Genuine, generally recommend a ball pit as the preferred um, uh, behavioural enrichment for most rabbits. But I do think that general principle of looking outside the square and trying to find something that your rabbit is interested in doing and initially breaking the, you know, the barrier by using uh, healthy treats to encourage them to have a go, that's a good thing, Brendan. It's yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, the other the other line that I like in that is it, it is important they are never forced to enter the ball pit, but are always able to escape. Gee, how the hell's a rabbit going to escape a ball pit when you throw them in there, Mark? Maybe they have a little ramp or something. But um, yes, I, I I find yeah I find it. Um, I was going to say hard to believe, but obviously it must be true. It's reported in um, the Royal College of Veterinary it's Science. It's on the web. Yes, it's on the web. Um, and the Dana, her home in, in Wethersfield, um, good on you. And um, The only thing I'd say about this, Brendan, <laughs> the only thing I would say is that as a general rule in trying to develop um, behavioural enrichment strategies, I often look to the animal in question's natural behaviour. Um, so I would look, you know, for rabbits, I would want to encourage them to burrow or to have some form of burrowing maze. Um, and colourful plastic balls are not the first thing that leaps yes. to mind in creating that replica of an environment that might make them feel more at ease and natural. But that's not to say that it doesn't work. And um, and I'm not charging the uh, wonderful Danaher animal rescue people in any way, shape, or form. But um, but I think um, I would like to see I... some video of the ball pit in action, Mark. You'll have to find some for me. The closest I've got to a ball pit is last week when when I had four rabbit castrations in a row, Mark, um, <laughs> and we ended up with a with a with a few um, bits and pieces left over there, Mark. But that's. That's the closest I've got to it. My next story is about um, sea lions, Mark. Um, speaking about ball pits, um, sea lions. For the first time, a colony of sea lions in Australia will be treated with a topical anti-parasiticide and then monitored for long-term health and survival. And they're concerned about the effects of hookworm, Mark, and um, especially um, in this as well as environmental pollutions and the other obvious things they worry about, humans-associated um, issues and heavy metals, etc. But they're, they're mainly talking about um, hookworms because hookworm infects the intestines of 100% of the Australian sea lion pups according to this article, says Dr. Gray and her team. So they're using a novel and minimally invasive treatment for hookworm and monitoring what effects it has on the pup mortality. 
And they have found, previously shown, that an injectable form of the hookworm treatment is effective, but they've recently piloted a topical treatment, which, as you'd expect, is easy to apply in the sea lion pup's coat, and found it is just as effective as the injectable form in treating hookworm because they're looking at trying to eliminate hookworm and how eliminating the hookworm can increase the survival from the other factors that are also killing the sea lion pups um, when their systems are being weakened by the hookworm mark. So, yeah, so I thought that was a good little little study that they're doing um, to try and help baby sea lions in the colony that they're treating with a topical anti-parasiticide. Brendan. Brendan, Brendan, Brendan. What do you think about I oh my I'm so worried about this. Yes. Um I wasn't gonna go down that um track, but yes, you've opened you've opened up the can of hookworm. So yeah, away you go, Mark. <laughs> well I just worry. I know that a similar thing happens um where we are um on the uh, mid-north coast of New South Wales. Just inland from us, there's a pretty good population of common wombats, animals that I really love, Brendan. Um, And our local carers have developed a number of little gates they like to stick out in the paddocks, uh, particularly right near the openings of the wombats' burrows. Um, And these gates... Uh, paint a little bit of um, topical parasiticide on the um, the uh, wombats because they're susceptible to uh, deform mites and uh, and skin disease associated with that. And geez, I you know if the world was so simple that you could just do that and solve a problem, that would be great. Um, but as we were talking about with the light and the clownfish before, I think. You know, simplistic treatments often have a series of unintended consequences. And my question to you, Brennan, is um, if you put a uh, treatment that kills invertebrates on an animal that lives in the ocean, then what happens, particularly a topical treatment, what happens to that part of the treatment that seeps off the coat and into the substrate around the said animal? Um, that's my first problem. And the second one is, um, geez, isn't if 100% of the sea lion pups have intestinal hookworm infections and we have a stable population, um, but then they're dying from other things like pollution or boat injuries or whatever... Um, shouldn't you change the other things and not start mucking around with parasites that might, in fact, be, um, you know, removing duds from the population? Um, you're then saving those animals, which might change the genetic nature of the population. These are these these are things that yes. worry me intensely, Brendan. Yes, I knew it would get your goat, Mark, and I think it's banned now, but do you remember the days when people with their boats would dry dock their boats and have the underside of their boat um, coated with with 
avermectins and ivermectins um, to help stop barnacles um, form in there. Yes. And I presume it has been hopefully um, banned, um, well, hopefully worldwide, but I'm sure people still do it. But um, remember oh, when that was a craze? Yes, I do remember. Thank goodness it's been banned. And I can't even put into words how angry it makes me. You should be, I reckon... I reckon my personal opinion is you should be bloody happy if a barnacle decides to sit on your boat. You should be honoured and you should just be, like, happy to see those little claws of the crustacean sweeping the ocean for food. You should be pleased. (laughs) I thought you were going to say something about I should be pleased if I have a barnacle on my backside, Mark. So, yeah. (laughs) But we won't go there. So what's your next news story? Yes, I, I understand exactly where you're coming from, though, Ark, and it's I'm just a... going to get, get down off my soapbox. And um, I'm going to talk about something even more stupid, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I do have to preface what I'm about to say with... Um, you're getting a little bit angry, aren't you? I am. I'm the, the, the temperature is rising, Brendan. Um, I have to preface what I'm about to say with... I. I I do I think this is an important story to tell um but I always am cautious about um uh stories that uh, talk about lawsuits um I think that um it's all you know well and good to say this particular thing is suing that particular thing and draw a whole lot of conclusions about it but but so I do it cautiously but this one's just too good to let slide through to the keeper um this article from only a, uh, a month or so ago talks about the wonderful Listen LLC uh, company uh, doing business as Answers Pet Food in the US. They filed a federal lawsuit in July this year in the US District of District Court of Colorado, which names the US Food and Drug Administration, numerous Colorado officials and agencies, and the Association of American Feed Control Officials as defendants. As uh, And in the 34-page complaint, the company refers to um, the FDA policy and safety guidelines as gobbledygook and makes a vague reference to punitive inspections. So this is a company, um, as I understand it, who uh, produces pet food um, but they don't cook it, if I understand. They might well be one of the companies that produce some, well, what we refer to in the industry as um, as raw foods. Um, and um, Answers Pet Foods depend on an alternative approach, which they believe satisfies the requirements of the applicable statutes through fermentation, the so-called hurdle technology. Um, and so using these uh, these processes, inoculation with uh, lactic acid bacteria, um, that that uh, reduces the potential pathogens such as salmonella to a point where they are compliant with the uh, legislation. But um, if they have not been, if the food hasn't been pasteurised, they must carry a label saying that it hasn't been pasteurised and it may contain harmful bacteria. Um, so the summary of this is that um, the company's suing the FDA in order that they can supply food that has a higher level of salmonella than currently is allowed. 
only in America. It goes in the file only in America. And I'm looking at the answers. It's Maybe it should be no answer or pet food, not answers, pet food. The website, a um, very fancy website, Mark, and uh, they, um, it's just answerpetfood.com, all one word, answerpetfood, and then .com, and they talk about um, their products and about why they have the fermentation method, Mark, and... Um, how it supposedly works. Um, so there we go. Um, and one of the products they sell is Answers Pet Food Fermented Raw Cow's Milk. Um, so, um, and our raw fermented pet foods are formulated to create a healthy gut, Mark. Um, so there we go. Um, and as in big letters, big um, font on their on their. Pay, one of their pages. 84% of the immune system is based in the gut, Mark. Um, you need to remember that. 84%. So there we go. 84%. Um, yes. Look, I, I yes. don't, for a second, I, I don't know that I entirely trust their specific percentage, but I don't deny <laughs> the, the importance of the gut to the immune system. Um, but I also don't know that they're. Look, I'm not going to say anything that could get me sued by a company so obviously keen on suing people, but um, I just prefer my food to have less salmonella than more. Let's just leave it there, Brendan. Yes, yes, I think I agree with you, and and perhaps um, perhaps um, perhaps it is a good diet, but it's probably not something I'd try on my my pets. Um, yes. So yeah, well, my my I've got. My, this is my best story of the week, Mark. Um, I love this story. Um, and this is about, I won't read the headline yet, but it's about a Canadian woman who's credited one of her favourite heavy metal bands for saving her and her dog. And this one's for you, Belinda, because she's into heavy metal, my associate man. Um, so it helps save her dog from a, a cougar, Mark, um, of the animal kind I'm talking about here. So Dee Gallant and her dog Murphy were hiking through the wilderness of Vancouver Island in British Columbia when she found herself in a spine-chilling predicament. As, as she was walking or they were walking through the woods, she noticed that she and her puppy were being stalked by a cougar. 50 feet or so up the trail and upon noticing that the cat was slowly creeping towards them she yelled at it and and, and made lots of noise and was trying to trying to scare it off but it um, continued to stalk them and, and um, according to according to D uh, it was still crouched in a predatory position with its gaze fixed upon gallant and Murphy her dog and since the wind was blowing in the wrong direction, Murphy had not even picked up the scent of the cougar, and she knew she had to try and scare the big cat away, Mark, before it pounced, and she lost her lost her um, little dog. So she began waving her arms and, and yelling at the cougar, which did nothing, and then she thought, well, she turned on her cell phone, Mark, she scrolled through her music library, and she played the loudest song she had, Don't Tread on Me by Metallica. And I thought it was the noisiest thing on my phone that would probably scare it. Um, and guess what? As soon as the first notes bled out, it ran off into the bush, Mark. Um, so she she thanks. And she one day, she one day she hopes to tell her story 
to the members of Metallica and thank them for coming to her rescue. And the quote is, I would love to contact them someday and tell James Hetford, who's one of the band members, that he saved my life. Um, she laughed. And there's a, we'll, we'll, um, I'll have the link to this news article and there is an actual video footage. I don't know whether you've seen it, Mark. You probably haven't yet, um, of when the, cougar was stalking her as she was walking along the trail there mark so i just love this story so there you go so there's um there's a good reason why you should have a bit of heavy metal um um on your cell phone mark um in case you get um, an unwanted if I, if predator I, if a big cat was stalking me Honestly, the last thing in the world I'd be doing is searching through my Spotify list to find the loudest song. I I could not even be nearly that organised. Yes, well, you'd be eaten then, Mark, wouldn't you? You'd be eaten, yes. So you've got to get some Metallica. Get some Metallica onto the onto the um, onto. It reminds me of another news story that you um, you. We'll be talking about in in another podcast, um, so I won't um, I won't um, talk about that here because we might be out of um, sync with our podcast. Mark, what's your last news story? The, the, my last news story is one I've really enjoyed this uh, this bit of news when um, it came out a few weeks ago. Um, as I understand it, uh, some fossil material was collected um, in New Zealand um, several years ago. Um, and recent research at Flinders University in South Australia has revealed that um, the fossils actually belong to what turns out to be the world's largest parrot, the largest parrot that's ever existed, well, that's ever been recorded to exist, um, an extinct, a bird that's been extinct for some time that stood a metre high and weighed about seven kilograms and uh, and had a particularly massive beak. The bird's been given the scientific name of Heracles inexpectatus um, <laughs> to reflect its uh, Herculean myth-like size and strength and the unexpected nature of its discovery, um, which I... I well... Um, the uh, it's 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 it is interesting that New Zealand is well known for its giant birds the the uh, the moa um, uh, giant geese and adz bills um, giant eagles are all recorded from um, the uh, the wonderful islands of New Zealand um, but no one anywhere has found um, an extinct giant parrot until this one. Um, New Zealand's already the home to the world's largest parrot, uh, largest known parrot. Um, That's the critically endangered flightless kakapo, which has had a particularly good breeding season we need to talk about at some point, Brendan. Um, Yes. But but Heracles is twice as big as the kakapo. Um, I do wonder, because the kakapo... One of the traits of the kakapo is that um, uh, because, you know, they uh, there's a lot of artificial breeding to build up their numbers, there's a couple of males who will mate anything. Um, they often jump on the... I think there's a, a one of the famous celebrities who was doing a bit of a world tour of endangered species managed to uh, um, have the pleasure of his hat on his head being mated by one of the the promiscuous uh, kakapos. And I wonder whether, you know, 
They come from New Zealand. They're a giant parrot. Maybe they have the same proclivities, Brendan, and um, a one-metre-high parrot bouncing on your head, that, that would be an experience. Um, it is a freaking big bird there, Mark. And um, I remember when I was um, one of the t- been fortunate to get to New Zealand a few times and one of the first times I was over in New Zealand, I did some um, some what do they call it over there, tramping, um, so bushwalking um, and camping um, in the bush with another vet friend of mine. Um, we were students at the time and I remember very distinctly, Mark, one of their other big parrots there, Mark, the Kia, um, that we'd, if you left your um, hiking boots outside your tent, um, they would be ripped to shreds um, by a Kia. And they're a, you know, they're not a small parrot, and they grow up to about fifty centimeters or so. Um, the Kia and an incredibly um, strong beak on 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 that particular species. So I couldn't imagine what what this world's largest parrot would be like. And well, I can considering the graphic that they put up there on that. Um, on that little, and the graphic they have there is 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 a silhouette of of the um, world's largest parrot fossil, as well as a silhouette of uh, what I presume say. I, I really, a, um, I really want to get to know uh, Professor Paul Schofield from Canterbury Museum, who is the uh, person responsible for that silhouette. Because of all the like, there's yes. a magpie. Why on earth a magpie of all the yes. birds in the world? Um, and then a very sixties looking like it looks like a um a sixties uh um uh um it could be a male, it could be a female, um it could be a metrosexual person. Want to judge yes. the, the uh, gender by silhouette, but it, it's at whatever gender we're dealing with here, it's a very um retro sixties look and then quite <laughs> aggressive plain standing Yes, it's, I know, I know. 90-degree um, angle, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm taking yes. my hat off to Professor Paul Schofield's um, silhouettes. Um, yes. Yes. Well, I encourage all our listeners to go and click on vetgurus.com and then you can click on the link to this particular article, which was from Bird Watching Daily, and it's also been re- repeated in, in many other um publications mark and i was just having a quick look as you were speaking at some of the some of the um it went a little bit viral didn't it that story and um one of one of the um publications that i saw it repeated in was the irish times um had a bit article on it and they had exactly the same silhouette um of um graphic there which i think most of the articles have repeated so yeah we'll have the link to that particular article and you and all our listeners can have a little chuckle at um at that um at that article and with that i think mr outro's here so we will talk to you all next week thanks for listening thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.